Welcome to Crosswalk Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. Take your Bibles and join us today in Romans chapter 1 as Pastor Mitch Pridgen concludes his teaching through this first chapter of the book of Romans, focusing on verses 28 through 32. What I want to do is I want to go back to Romans chapter 1 just for a moment. And, and I want to read verses 28 through 32. I don't know how you have felt uh, as we've gone. I, I can tell you from standing in this perspective up here, uh, I, I feel like I have been in some deep places where I have had to, I mean, literally, I've often thought about doing one of those eco races. I've done a lot of different things, triathlons, never done an eco race where you're running through the woods, mud waist deep and crawling under stuff and thought about doing one of those. I'm not so sure at my age right now I'm ready to do that. But I feel like spiritually that in a sense is what I've been doing for several weeks is doing one of those eco races. I've spent most of the time in the swamp. And uh, because this is this is heavy stuff, there's no doubt about it. There's a reason why this book, the book of Romans, is called Paul's magnum opus. It is his premier thesis on theology. And he takes that very serious because, as you've said, remember, I've said to you several times as we've gone through our exposition so far of chapter one is that the church at Rome, now over about 30 years old, um, has had up to this point, the point of his writing, there's no reason for us to believe, historically proven, that they had had any direct apostolic teaching. And what I mean by that was not they had not received teaching, but the direct teaching of an apostle either one who had been with Jesus or like Paul who had been called shortly after Christ's ascension, his resurrection and ascension to apostleship. So you can imagine this is this church is sitting right in the seat of at that time civilization, the capital of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome. And we know historically as well as from the testimony of scripture that that church had grown in fact, it had grown, its influence had grown so widely that even some of those who were in high places were influenced by the gospel. Even those who had ser were serving perhaps even in Caesar's court were secret Christians, had become, come to embrace the faith even though they perhaps were not as open with it as some of the other Christians were. And yet at the same time, we know the Christians were suffering great persecution and the, the persecution of Nero, which was about to really be poured out and the, the Caesars after him was about to be poured out. So Paul pours himself into his teaching in this book. And so what, he does it intentionally. He's not just merely saying, okay, let me just deal with negative stuff because that's, my, that's what I like to do. He's, he's intentional about what he's doing here. And what he's doing is clearly establishing, and this is important for us to recognize, he's clearly establishing man's standing before God outside of Christ. The unrighteousness 
of unregenerate man. And in doing so, what he's doing is establishing a tremendous case for the necessity of being restored to right relationship with God. And then in chapter 3, verse 21 and following, as he does his tremendous teaching on justification by faith, and then goes right on into the rest of his theological teaching through chapter 11 of Romans, chapter 11, even beginning of chapter 12. So then he, he has something that he's been building on and standing on. So I want to read verses 28 through 32 because as I got to the end of last week, I felt like I just rushed through these as quickly as I could because I was looking at the clock. And I've got a little more time this morning, but in verse 28, it says, And they, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, that which Paul was already talking about earlier in chapter 1, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner. Now note this. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's pretty rough, isn't it? <laughs> it is pretty rough. I mean, I'd rather go back to the Psalms this morning and preach the latter part of the Psalms, Hallel Psalms, where we're just praising God through that. But this is, this is important stuff. In his exposition of the letter of Paul to the Romans, um, the late Donald, Donald Gray Barnhouse, a Presbyterian pastor, when commenting on chapter 1, verse, verses 28 through 31, even though he wasn't speaking specifically to verse 32, he writes this in his commentary. And listen, I, I love the way Dr. Barnhouse lays this out very clearly. He says, as we read the horrible list, and I would say amen, God says that men are filled with these things. And of course, it means that all men are filled with these things. It does not necessarily mean, and this is important for us to note, it does not necessarily mean that all these things break out in every member of the human race. Thank God. But that the seeds of all these things are an inherent part of the makeup of every one of us. See, just pause for a moment. Because it's so easy for us to be doing this, isn't it? Pointing somewhere else. And yet Barnhouse brings home very clearly that the very things that Paul writes of here are the things that inherently are in each and every one of us. Potentially, they are there. In the genetic pattern, he continues, in the genetic pattern of the human race, there is essential evil as God sees it, and all that is wrong with humanity comes from the heart of humanity. The most colossal, and I love this language he uses here. He says, the most colossal blunder is to think that man is naturally good or that there is a divine spark in each man which must merely be fan, or fan to flame. End of quote. Now, I, I especially, as I just noted with you, 
I especially like his comment calling the notion of man's inherent goodness a popular view today. In fact, if you were to go out, and Ray Comfort does this on a regular basis as he's doing his street evangelism, and many, many others will go out and do this. One of the first questions that they will ask people, uh, do you feel like you're basically a good person? Now, what do you think is the general answer that most people give when asked that question? Of course I am. And then he asked the next question, well, what makes you think that? And so they, they begin to give you this litany of things. And I'll deal with this here in just a moment. But the reason it is so, so that's a very popular view today that basically all people or all people are basically good. That somehow all men are inherently good. Something goes awry somewhere in the process. In fact, as Pelagius taught, men are not born sinners. They're not born, but they're born with the potential to sin, but they're not born with that inherent sin. That sin is something that they learn. And so they are taught to sin. Well, he must have never been around babies. But the reason it is so colossal is that it flies in the face of what the Bible teaches Every single place we go, you will find no such notion of man's inherent goodness in the word of God, which is the very is very clearly the case that Paul argues in Romans 1, 18 through Romans 3, verse 20. That's his argument in three chapters, eight, roughly 81 verses. That's his argument. So in the context of Romans 1, having just spoken of the third handing over that I addressed the last couple of weeks in verse 28, being handed over to a debased or depraved mind, his list of sinful deeds continues. And the reason I brought that up this morning is because we, we dealt with one specific aspect of debauchery last week. And I don't want you to think that simply that's the only thing these verses are addressing it certainly is addressing the sin of homosexuality that we talked about last week as a clear marker of man's debased thinking or deprived or corrupted thinking. But by no means is that everything. And then he gives you this list of things, 21 of them in the English Standard Version. If you have the King James Version, it's 23. The way that the King James translators broke that up. Sins, which are pretty significant. And so these evils are of such importance to Paul that he refers back to them in verse 32, which I did not refer to a moment ago in Barnhouse's statement, but the last verse of this chapter. But twice in chapter 2, as we're going to see in a moment, in verses 2 and 3. So the reality that such things, as Paul talks about in Romans 2, are true potentials in the human heart does not mean, nor is it Paul's implication, that all people at all times conduct themselves this way. In fact, that's the, the misunderstanding of the whole doctrine of total depravity, which is the first in the doctrines of grace. When we say that men are totally depraved, people want to contend with that statement because they look around and say, well, men are not as evil as they possibly can be, so I don't believe in total depravity. Total depravity does not teach that men are as depraved as they possibly can be or that they behave themselves as wickedly as they possibly can. It means, however, that man is totally unable to do anything about his relationship with God apart from grace. 
And secondly, that the potential to do all those things does indeed rest inherently in the human heart. That is why it is essential, we see in Ezekiel, we see in John chapter 3, why it is essential that God give us a new heart. Why regeneration is absolutely essential is because we must be given a new heart. Because an unregenerate heart, as Jeremiah says, is deceitful above all else. Who can know it? And so that's necessary. So all those things by, by potential do rest in the hu- human heart. We are all aware that God's grace, why do men not, if these things are potentials in human hearts, then why do men not practice them? Well, if you look around, you don't have to look very far to see many of these are in practice. But the reason it's not so widespread as to be overrun by that is that God's grace, God's common grace, restrains the full manifestation of the wickedness of men. And I thank God for that. God's in control. God is sovereign. And God's grace restrains. God God literally sets the boundaries and says no further than this. And God does have the rule and reign over those things. And so... The the point Paul is making is when men, in this case of Romans 1, the Gentiles or the Greeks, when men depart from the Creator's intention for ordered and decent human relationships, as we talked about last week, such a degeneration, such a degradation is not only a possibility, but is indeed a reality. Now, I want to show you that. Just hold your fingers in Romans with me for a moment and turn to the book of Genesis. And I've, I, have, I have referred to these as we've gone through this, but I want you to see this in reality, what God's Word clearly says concerning these things. And turn with me first to the book of Genesis chapter 6. And as all of us know, this is the historical account, and yes... I use that term intentionally, historical account, not an allegorical account, a historical account of a literal event that took place on earth, the flood. And I want to read verses 1 through 8, and I want you to listen very carefully. In fact, if you have the English Standard Version, the subtitle to this section is called Increasing Corruption on Earth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not always abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim who were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. That's a whole lesson in itself. But look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And these are powerful words. Think about this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I don't know how you can be any clearer than that. In verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. 
So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's look at another real quickly, just one more, in Genesis 18. In Genesis 18, you know this is the account of how God deals with Sodom and Gomorrah. And in verses 20 and 21 of 18, Genesis 18, we read this. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, let me just inform you, because there's so much to be said about this passage. God did not visit for an information. It was an information journey. He wasn't wondering if what he was hearing was true. God knew that it was indeed true. And we know the consequences of God going into that place, rescuing Lot and his family, other than his wife, who literally was, was executed as she ran, ran out of the city looking back, and how God dealt with that. Now... Turn back to Romans with me for a second. I want you to see from thus those two passages, which I didn't do any, any exposition on for the sake of time and intentionally, that, that this, is, this is real stuff. The condition of men's hearts and, and God's dealing with them. What do you saw there? In Noah's case, it was many years from the time God said, build the ark to the time the floods came. For 120 years, Noah preached and preached repentance. And yet, when the day came, when the, when the floodgates opened, the heavens opened, the earth broke forth, and water began to come to flood this entire terrestrial sphere that we live on, the entire thing. Amazingly, it was only Noah and his family that was spared after preaching, preaching all those years. Now, in verse 32, back in Romans 1. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, here's what I want you to focus on. It's a strong verse, and it's very important that we understand what Paul is saying. He says, those who practice such things deserve to die. This is where I feel like I rushed through last week. He's not saying, he's not saying or, nor does he mean a human death penalty. He's not saying, he's not saying, okay, you need to take these people out and you need to slay them. No, that's not what he's saying. What he is referring to is God's, and this is important for us to recognize in context of this. He is referring to God's ultimate condemnation for such behavior. Not just the sins of lesbianism and homosexuality that he mentions in chapter 1, but also all the list of 21 things that he gives you. Every single one of those things. God's ultimate com condemnation for such behavior. Every man, every woman have been given by God a moral consciousness. And that consciousness not only knows what it is doing, that what it is doing is wrong. It also knows one day it will be held accountable for the wickedness that it's doing. You need to understand that. That the consciousness that God has given, God has indelibly written His law upon the heart of every single human being. And has given every human being a conscience. A consciousness of what they are doing. They know when they are doing it. 
Why does a thief break in at night when no one can see him? Why does a little kid who's going to put his hand in the cookie jar wait for mom to leave the kitchen to make sure she's nowhere around? There's a consciousness that what they are doing is wrong. And they know that if they are caught, they will be held accountable for it. And Paul makes it very clear to his readers and to us, man indeed has a knowledge of, and I call this the sinfulness of sin. Man has, man has a knowledge of the sinfulness of sin within himself. God has written, as I said a moment ago, the moral law into the very nature of man. And while man is busy committing sin, he's conscious of the fact that by doing so, he's deserving of death. And that the judgment of God has already been pronounced against such things. That's Romans 1.18. What it's saying. Now, one might object. You probably heard the objections. One might object and say, well, what about the atheist? And Paul has already made it clear there really is no such thing as an atheist. I bet that shocks some of you, doesn't it? Because, oh, well, I know people that are atheists. Really? Let's, let's look for a moment at what Paul says. And I go back to even my pre-salvation days, my pre-regeneration and conversion days, in my adamant disdain for anything that pertained to God and my hatred for the things of God, not only for the things of God, my hatred for anybody who dared even talk about those things in my presence. But it says, well, what about the atheist? Well, Paul deals with that. In verse 19, listen to what he says of chapter 1. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Okay. And then in verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Then in, in, later in verse 25, he says, They became fools and exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And as I was reading that, I began to immediately think about Psalm 14.1 which most of you know, you should all, all automatically know that, which is also repeated in, in Psalm 53, 1, where the word of the Lord says that only a fool says in his heart, there is no God. And yet that is exactly what is being said here by Paul. They became fools by virtue of their thinking being, their hearts being darkened and their thinking becoming futile. Not only do all men know there is a God, but they know that He will one day judge their sinfulness. That's the crux of the issue. That really is the crux of the issue. It is an accountability issue. Because the moment I admit, in fact, I listened to a debate just briefly this morning. As Terry was getting ready and I was getting ready and I was just listening to it and she was listening to it with me. And we listened maybe only about four or five minutes of it. And, and we heard uh, this, this Christian apologist debating an, uh, an anti-theist. And this was, the, this was the very point of the anti-theist argument. He could not even come near acknowledging the existence of God because the moment you acknowledge the existence of something greater than you, outside of yourself that you are accountable to, it changes everything. 
And so if I don't want to be accountable to anyone, if I don't want to be accountable to anything outside of my own, my own relativity, then I just ignore or adamantly deny and argue against the existence of God when in reality, in my heart, in my conscience, I know differently. I know differently. Think for a moment. And I was thinking about this yesterday. Think for a moment uh, back to the late Christopher Hitchens. Anybody, raise your hands if you know the name Christopher Hitchens. Some of you do. Christopher Hitchens is, uh, has gone on. He has left this life. And uh, he was one of the handful of what I had termed the most rabid atheist, even though I use that word again, I'm just using it to identify him. I really should be say rabid anti-theist. That him and Richard Dawkins and Sam Evans and Michael Shermer, I could go right down the list of those who were just, had just set their faces like flint toward arguing against the existence of God. And, and the amazing thing, Hitchens was not an atheist, but an anti-theist. Because all you had to do was listen, as I did, to hours upon hours upon hours of debates. When he debated people like Dinesh D'Souza, he dated, uh, debated people like Ravi Zacharias, he debated, debated so many other people. But Hitchens exerted a lot of time and a lot of energy not proving that God did not exist. He, he never really attempted to prove that God did not exist, even though he admitted he didn't believe God existed, but we know better than that. But, but that in reality, his, what he did was he spent his time expressing his rabid hatred for the idea that God does exist and that God was not to his personal liking. He had all kinds of ugly names he would call God. Well, if you don't believe in somebody, why call them names? You only call people names that somehow you believe exist. And so that's, in fact, what he was doing. And so that he must hate the fact that he didn't, that God does exist and that God was not to his personal liking, that God must hate sin and judge sin. Now, Hitchens has left this world. In fact, I heard one of the last interviews that someone had with him as his body was being ravaged with cancer and he had just basically melted to nothing. And listen to what he says. I know some of you Christians out there thinking that God has got even with me. He said, but I'm going to tell you if this is the best God's got, I feel sorry for him. End of quote. Do you, do you hear? Do you hear the rabid hatred in that? Again, was it, there really is no denial that God exists. He knew better than that. But to the very end, it seems or appears to us, we don't know that last moment, but it should appear to us pretty clearly at that moment what his position was. He's left this world and now has come face to face with the truth. And guess what verse 20 tells us about not only Hitchens, but anyone who is like this. They're without excuse. As the New American Standard Bible says, I believe it says without defense. Now that ends chapter 1 and you're thinking, praise God. But then there's chapter 2. 
And we'll take a pause right there and pick up with Romans chapter 2 next time here on Crosswalk Radio. We thank you for tuning in today and want to encourage you to visit our website at crosswalkdaytonabeach.org for more information about this ministry. And tune in next time as we continue to teach, touch, and transform lives by faithfully proclaiming God's Word.